This episode of The Incubator is proudly sponsored by Chiesi. Providing innovative neonatology solutions for more than 35 years, Chiesi is committed to supporting the neonatology community and the NICU families you serve. To learn more, visit www.nicuconnections.com slash incubator. This is The Incubator, a weekly discussion about new advances in neonatology and the fascinating individuals who make this progress possible. I am Dr. Ben Korsha. And I'm Dr. Daphne Yasova-Barbo. We are neonatal intensive care physicians. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of The Incubator. It's Sunday. We're doing Journal Club. Daphna, how are you? Uh, I'm doing great. Uh, We've been busy. I feel like we always say that. You know, that is something I'm going to get on my soapbox for a little bit. It just came to me. As a culture, as a society, we just say we're busy, we're busy, we're busy. We have been really fortunate to have a lot of opportunities this week is what I wanted to say. Good for you. And it came out wrong. We're, we're very excited today um, because we have a new member of the team that's mm-hmm. joining us on the podcast. And uh, please uh, join us in welcoming Priya Patel to the show. How are you, Priya? Good. Thank you, Ben and Daphna. Such an honor to be here. Well, we've known Priya for some time. We've worked with Priya before. And uh, so we're very excited. We think she's tremendous and that she's going to be a great addition to the show. She's, she's, gonna, she, she's been a huge help in terms of there's a lot of preparation. I mean, I know it sounds like a very casual conversation when we get on the show, but we actually prep intensively for these episodes. And uh, Priya has been uh, helping us in the background with prepping and logistical stuff. And uh, she has a unique background that uh, we think is uh, would allow her to uh, join us on these episodes and, and share some some wisdom. So Priya, tell, tell the audience about yourself and, and who you are. And, and uh, yeah. Yeah, thanks. Actually, Ben, I'm trained as a pharmacist, so I did a residency after pharmacy school, and I worked 10 years as a NICU clinical pharmacist at a pretty busy uh, NICU, and then transitioned sort of into industry. Um, And I've been in industry for about six and a half years, Um, recently took a new position that's working in pediatric ultra-rare disease, and really, you know, my love and my passion is neonatology, so I'm grateful to be here. I guess I want to be very transparent with the audience. This is something that we're very, very much dedicated to. So for, um, I think people may even find this out in the future. So I want to just get it out of in the open. You used to work for our primary sponsor, Chiesi, and that's sort of the work that you were doing when you're talking about working in industry. Um, And obviously, I think this wouldn't really have happened unless you had moved on. So you're no longer working with Chiesi. So that, uh, so um so so that i think is also very important for us to not have uh i think if if it would have been very different if a, if a company sponsoring some of the things that we're doing would have had a representative on the show it could have been misconstrued but that's no longer the case and so if people are not up to date on the latest of priya patel then you know <laughs> get your latest magazines at the at the checkout counter and see what she's up to you know <laughs> Appreciate that, Ben. But also I have to put the disclaimer here that these really are my opinions based on my experiences and not of those of my previous or current employers. It's just me. That's who you're going to get. Yeah, that's who we are. Okay, so let's let's get into Journal Club because we have 
a ton of articles. So we're recording this on Thursday, October 27th. So we usually record these episodes pretty close to the release date so that we can be as up-to-date as possible. And as I was finishing the preparing touches on the uh, on the articles that we're presenting this week, my wife like tells me, hey, have you seen the paper that dropped in the New England? And I'm like, God damn it. <laughs> <laughs> I thought I was done. Um, but I guess this is where I would like to start because... Anytime a neonatal paper comes out in the New England Journal of Medicine, it's something that everybody really wants to find out exactly mm -hmm. what this is about and and um, and what is what is the new evidence that just came out. So I'm going to start with that one. And, and the paper is called Neonatal Docosahexonic Acid, DHA. And I'm no longer going to try to pronounce that. It's going to be DHA for the rest mm -hmm. of the review. In Preterm Infants and Intelligence at Five Years. The first author is Jacqueline Gould. It's in the New England and it's data out of Australia. So I really enjoyed the background section of the paper. So uh, it, it does provide a refresher on a lot of um, high-yield stuff about DHA. Uh, it mentions how infants born at the earliest gestational ages are deprived of the placental supply of DHA that normally accumulates in the brain during the final trimester of pregnancy. So many things like that are being disrupted because of early delivery. Um, and uh, they also mentioned that DHA makes up approximately 30% of the lipid content of the brain and is uh, an integral in the synaptosomal structure during neuronal development. Now, preterm babies born before 30 weeks of gestation have reduced DHA concentration in neural tissues, which may uh, be a contributor to some of the, of the poorer cognitive outcomes that are seen in that specific patient population compared to full-term babies. The current feeding practices in preterm infants is to provide approximately 20 milligrams of DHA per kilogram of, uh, uh, of body weight per day, um, which is the level naturally present in the milk of women who are consuming a typical Western diet. And I think that was important that they, they quantify that, um, which is still lower than the estimated in utero requirement that would be closer to 60 milligrams per kilogram per day. So about like three times that number. And they were mentioning how there's really mixed data on how DHA supplementation can improve cognitive, fun cognitive function later in life. And the, the largest trial that uh, they were referencing is showing potentially a benefit when it comes to language at 18 to 22 months corrected age. So what they were embarking on uh, in this study was to evaluate the general cognitive functioning of infants befo born before 29 weeks of gestation who had been part of a very large trial that involved 1,200, 1,300 infants, and that evaluated uh, the effect of providing the estimated requirement of DHA during the neonatal period as compared with a standard practice um, for the prevention of BPD. And so that was the original trial that they, that they had conducted. Now, they took the data from this trial and wanted to assess intelligence at five years corrected age in the subgroup of these children. Now, for the people who are curious, well, what about BPD? Uh, I'm not going to go into, we don't have time to go into that other paper, um, but that other paper is published in the New England as well. And for reference, when they looked at the outcomes of physiologic BPD, clinical BPD, actually the DHA group babies had worse BPD than the control. So that's why you're probably not giving DHA for BPD prevention. <laughs> um, but it doesn't mean that the data couldn't be used to look at the effect of DHA on long-term uh, neurodevelopment. So this was the NERO trial, N3RO trial, which is a multi-center blinded parallel group randomized control trial that evaluated the effect of DHA feeding on bronchopulmonary dysplasia. Originally, it recruited infants from 20, 
2012 to 2015. 2015, the infants were enrolled if they were born before 29 weeks of gestation. The trial was uh, included 1,273 infants across 13 centers in Australia, New Zealand, and Singapore. The patients were basically randomized one-to-one -to, -one to either receiving their, uh, after their first enteral feeds to either DHA or a control substance. All infants in the trial received the 20 milligrams of DHA per kilogram per day from the human milk or preterm infant formula as soon as they were receiving full enteral feed. So that remained the baseline, right? Now, the intervention was uh, the emulsion uh, provided 60 milligram of DHA per kilogram per day uh, from the time of enrollment, as where the control were not really getting that, that extra DHA that we perceive might be more equal to what the baby would have accrued during the third trimester of pregnancy. Uh, the trial emulsions were administered three times per day, so on a on a on a um, yeah, so Q uh, Q eight uh, basis, right? Uh, starting at enrollment for at least seven weeks, uh, the administration of these emulsions stopped at thirty six weeks of postmenstrual age, or discharge home, whichever occurred first. Remember, this was a trial that was designed for BPD, so that's sort of why that time point I think was was uh, chosen. Now, this study only involved the centers that participated in the original study from Australia. You remember I said it was Australia, New Zealand, and Singapore. This was only for Australia. The infants were followed up at five years of age. And the primary outcome, what they were looking at, was at the five-year follow-up, um, was the full-scale intelligence quotient assessed at that, at that time point, uh, corrected age, with the Weschler Preschool and Primary Scale of Intelligence um, fourth edition. So very standard tools to assess to assess that. Some of the secondary outcomes uh, involved other indexes from the Weschler uh, from the Weschler uh, tool, um, as well as mild and moderate to severe intellectual impairment or other cognitive impairment were pre-specified secondary outcomes. Other secondary outcomes uh, add, uh, included pre-specified um, things like executive functioning. Uh, represented by the fruit stroop interference score, which is basically a score where the higher you score, the better the performance. They also looked at height, weight, head circumference, Z-score uh, for corrected age, sex, neurological and physical diagnosis or disability. Um, the, the analysis was done on intention to treat basis, and whenever they had missing outcome data, they did they perform a multiple imputation uh, system. So far, so good, guys. Got it. Okay, so. <laughs> What are some of the results, right? So of the 702 uh, children who had been enrolled in the initial Nero trial at the five centers uh, that they were uh, looking at, um, 656 survived to five years corrected age and 652 were eligible to participate. There's a lot of complicated exclusion, multiple imputation. The bottom line is 656 children were entered into the final cohort 323 in the DHA group, 333 in the control. Uh, the baseline characteristics were similar between the groups. So what are some of the results? The mean um, FSIQ. So FSIQ, when you see that in the paper, it's the full-scale intelligence quotient um, at approximately five years of age was 95.4 in the DHA group versus 91.9 in the control group. And that was statistically significant. So the babies in the DHA group did better, uh, technically. Mm -hmm. 
The uh, estimates of treatment effect on other indexes of the Weschler and the Fruit-Stroop interference core generally did not support the result of the primary outcome. Now, the percentage of children with a clinical diagnosis of autism spectrum disorder, attention deficit, hyperactivity disorder, or other behavioral or neurological disorders were below 7% and were similar between the two groups. Likewise, the growth disease scores were similar between the two groups. And in terms of adverse events um, in the follow-up study, they were similar between the, the two groups. So um, the conclusions of the article is that there, uh, an enteral emulsion of DHA at a dose of 60 milligram per kilo per day was associated with modestly higher uh, full-scale uh, intellectual quotient scores at five years of age among infants born before 29 weeks. These results support, this is some of the conclusions from the author, these results support the current recommendation that preterm infants born before 29 weeks should receive approximately 60 milligrams of supplemental DHA per kilo per day, in addition to the DHA available from human milk or preterm infant formula, in order to approximate the fetal required ratio. Um, Twitter is... A buzz. A buzz. Uh, That's right. Cammy Martin. On fire. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, everybody is weighing in. I think to me, the the point that has been made by by many people, I think I think a psychologist even mentioned that on Twitter, is is that difference, is that three point difference in the IQ that you're seeing. Are you, are you going to notice that in any way clinically that's going to be a significant change, right? And and even though the numbers, as we've said, the numbers technically are different enough that statistically you reach significance, uh, is is a 95 versus a 92 that big of a difference? Uh, that's that's a very interesting question. Um, and so I'm curious to hear what, uh, what you think. Well, for me, I mean, DHA has always been very promising, right? Um, because we're using it prenatally, we're, we're, there's some recommendations to use it in the pediatric population, so why not examine it in, in uh, neonates? And I think for me, who has an interest in kind of neurodevelopmental outcomes, it's like, like when we do BPD bundles, when we do, you know, it's a cumulative effect. So if you can amass three points with everything that we do, then I think you move, you're you're gearing up for a big change. Um I think we also need some more data, right? Like Yeah, you, is... you you wouldn't really know if if all the interventions would be additive though. I think that that could be um, sure. so yeah. But um yeah. Yeah and one thing I was gonna say is uh, I'm really impressed with the uh final f number of kids that got followed up versus the initial. That's a high mm -hmm. rate of retention there. That's that's very good. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and Cami Martin on on Twitter has has written extensively, and she's responding to people about um, um, the basically what you were talking about, Daphne, like maternal dietary intake. How that how important is that, and how much does that contribute? Uh, and she even re referenced a, a paper in JAMA with the maternal DHA supplementation on BPD free survival uh, in preterm infants. So definitely, yeah. And that brings up a good point, which we've talked about some of the other nutrients that maybe, maybe if you got enough of it prenatally, maybe it doesn't make a difference what you get postnatally, right? But we, we, we can individualize the medicine or we can make recommendations for everybody. But, you know, uh, if we're not, you know, if you're at a deficit already, um, depending on your prenatal accumulation or lack thereof, you know, then, then maybe it makes a difference for you. Um, right. So, yeah. So uh, we're hoping that uh, we're trying to stay 
on top of these different publications as they come out. So we were very happy that we were able to cover that for you guys this morning. Uh, and uh, yeah, so um, who, who wants to go next? Um, I'll go next. Okay. I'm going to take it in a totally different direction. Please. Um, I've been looking forward to reviewing this paper. Actually, I am doing two papers today that I was very much looking forward to. Um, but this is entitled Characterizing the Language Used to Discuss Death in Family Meetings for Critically Ill Infants. I just think this is such an important topic. Uh, lead author, uh, Margaret Bartlett, um, uh, trailing author, Monica uh, Lemon. Um, uh, this is in JAMA Network Open uh, Pediatrics. It's coming to us from Duke in North Carolina. So what's kind of the background necessary if you're, you haven't been reading the literature in this space? So um, there are consensus guidelines about how we communicate with um, families. Most of this comes from adult literature, which is like trickle down to pediatrics literature. And now we're moving into kind of perinatal care. But it really it emphasizes the importance of clear communication. Um, in, in particular, uh, avoiding euphemisms, where we use different words to describe what we actually mean, because what we actually mean to say is a topic like death, um, which is uncomfortable for us, or we feel it, like it is uncomfortable for families. Fancy way of saying beating around the bush. That's exactly right. That's exactly <laughs> right. And there are many ways to do that, which I'll tell you about <laughs> shortly. Um, so what did they want to look at? They wanted to look at uh, family meetings and see like, what language are we using to discuss death um, in family meetings between uh, parents of critically ill infants and the clinical team? So they enrolled families of infants with neurologic conditions. Um, so this is this is like, you know, kind of a subset of our population, but I think uh, the information is useful regardless. Who had a planned family meeting for kind of goals of care um, were enrolled from September 2018 to September 2020. And this was a longitudinal observational study that they transcribed the family meetings over um, the course of the infant's stay. So uh, some infants may have had many goals of care discussions. Um, and they looked at, again, uh, the language around death. So inclusion criteria, uh, age younger than one year, diagnosed neurologic condition, hospitalized in the neonatal pediatric or pediatric cardiac intensive care unit um, at their study site, and uh, that they had a planned family meeting to discuss either the prognosis or um, starting, not starting, or discontinuing life-sustaining treatment. Exclusion criteria is parents were not enrolled if they were younger than 18, had um, some uh, speech or hearing impairment, um, which I think is really interesting that they included this um, because that is um, a, a population that we ignore or we don't really talk about in our in our studies. So I think that was really uh, valuable. Um, and required translation to read or interpret, uh, uh, required interpretation to converse in English. Another, um, another population that gets left out of our uh, communication literature. Yeah, there were, there were a lot of articles recently in pediatrics mm -hmm. about outcomes in mm -hmm. children of parents with disability and and mm -hmm. we, we, we didn't get around to reviewing these articles, but they were really, really good. So I encourage people to go check that out in pediatrics. I think it was maybe a month ago. The primary outcome um, was, again, what was the language used to reference the term death during family meetings between parents and clinicians? So they screened all of these family meetings for the discussion of death, but they were looking really for the following, either mention of an infant, um, 
potentially dying owing to a current medical problem or a diagnosis, or either um, not starting or discontinuing life-sustaining treatment, a mention of a prior near-death event, like the baby had had a code previously, a mention of a hypothetical future near-death event, like anticipating um, bradycardia. Um, so baseline characteristics, they had a total of 68 family meetings involving 36 parents of 24 infants and discussion of death was present in 49% of the family meetings. And you know that all of the meetings were supposed to be talking about, uh, prognosis. Oh, that's, so that's, that's already, that's, oh, that's already an important fact. Oh, okay. I didn't realize yes. that. Um, the 33 family meetings uh, that included discussion of death involved the care of 13 of the 24 total infants, so 54% um, and 56% of parents. So for these 13 infants, one parent identified as the infant's mother. Uh, hold on. For, thir- for all 13 infants, there was one, one parent identified as the infant's mother. For seven infants, or 54%, another parent was enrolled um, who identified as the infant's father. Among these 13 infants, death was discussed in a median of three meetings. Um, The range was one to five meetings. In family meetings that included discussion of death, the 13 infants being discussed had a median length of hospital stay of 86 days. The median gestational age was actually 37 weeks, but remember these are babies with neurologic um, diagnoses. Uh Seven or 54% were female, 46% were male, Um, 92% received mechanical ventilation, 46% required chest compressions, 38% had a do not um, a do not resuscitate order placed, and fifteen percent or two of the infants died during admission. So I think you can understand this is a pretty sick cohort, right? So definitely babies who should be having goals of care discussions. Um, there was some data uh, about the um, family, uh, the parents, but in interest of time, I'm not going to get into that. Um, so the primary outcome: the words die death, dying, and stillborn in some situations were used a total of 32 times in 406 references to death, only 8%. And they were present in 15 of the 33 family meetings that included discussion of death. So in that's 45%. So the words that, you know, the actual words, die, death, dying, um, were only used in 45%. Uh, I'm here. All right. Most words um, during discussions of death were spoken by clinicians. Um, so 73%. Family members, though, were, were responsible for were responsible for most uses of die, death, dying, or stillborn, 59%. When referencing death, family members were more likely to use die, death, dying, or stillborn than were clinicians. And among family members, mothers were more likely to use die, death, dying, or stillborn, um, 89%. Um, as compared to the uh, fathers. Among clinicians, palliative care clinicians were most likely to use these terms, 54%. Not surprising. Um, Interestingly, many uses of die, death, dying, or stillborn by clinicians followed a parent's request for clarity. For example, they uh, document one of these exchanges. The then they say took place after clinicians 350 word description of bradycardic episodes uh, in an infant with a congenital brain anomaly. The mom, 
what you're saying. I mean, I want you to actually say it in the intensive care fellow. So I'm going to say it. I'll say it. I'll just say it. I'm concerned that at some point her heart rate may go all the way down and not come back up and she'll die. So there was a lot of this beating around the bush until parents said like, I'm going to need you to clarify what you mean. Um, clinicians and family members replace die, death, dying, and stillborn with a euphemism most of the time. 374 of the total references are 92%, but differed in the types of euphemisms that they use. And they identified four different types of euphemisms that people were using instead of those um, code words. So medical jargon accounted for 36% of references to death. Um, and uh, the majority of medical jargon was used by clinicians. Medical jargon took two major forms. In the first, death was described using technical words or phrases uh, with connotations that are not clear to clinicians, to non-clinicians. So this included shorthand for other events, such as uh, an episode, a code, an arrest, or phrases such as ultimately fatal, a guarded prognosis, or let's redirect care to comfort measures. And the second form of medical jargon was um, kind of what they call it physiologic circumlocation in which a concrete description of death was given without interpretation. Um, and this sometimes overlapped um, with, uh, with other terms. So for example, uh, they'd say, uh, if, if your baby were to code, which parents don't always understand, will not be providing chest compressions. So they indicated that the baby would die, but they didn't actually say it. Or with her condition, there's always a possibility that sometimes she can stop breathing. So for us, we know that means babies will die, but families don't don't have the information to 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 carry uh, that step out. Um, the next most type of uh, most common type of euphemism was colloquialisms, in which death was replaced with some sort of figurative language. And this accounted for 26% of references to death and were the most common type of euphemism used by family members, 34%. There were multiple different types of colloquial colloquialisms. Death was abstracted using a variety of metaphors, a journey to the afterlife, losing a fight or battle, running out of time. The most common were to pass away or to not make it. The next most common type of euphemism was pronouns and vague nouns, which accounted for 22%. Clinicians and family members referenced death using pronouns at similar rates. And most of it, uh, most of those were, yes, it's uh, using um, like uh, it, what, this, or something will happen. For example, the clinician might say, yes, it's really hard for us to predict when it would happen. Family member might say, I know what would happen at any, I know what would happen at any time. And if that does happen, I would rather it happen knowing that we got a bond. So they, people indicated they understood that death was a possibility or a likely outcome without actually saying it. And the final type of euphemism was survival framing, 19%. Clinicians and family members referenced death using survival framing at similar rates. Um, so it's really talking about life in a reference to death. So these statements um, were kind of a denial of the opposite or a double negative, such as uh, don't live or not survive, or we don't know how long she may live, or his life is going to be short. Um, 
decisions that they, they also want to talk about statements that left the potential for death implied. So decisions that might result in death, such as discontinuing life-sustaining treatment or placing a do not uh, resuscitate order were discussed without any reference to death. So they were talking about these real concrete goals of care without, you know, even saying um, that using them or without them, the baby may die. This type of language is used in 21 of the family meetings, 64%, and was most often initiated by clinicians. In 52% of these meetings, there were no uses of die, death, dying, or stillborn, even though they were asking parents uh, to do something like withdrawal of life-sustaining treatment or putting in a DNR. And in encouraging parents for death, um, statements uh, often spoke about um, logistical arrangements or doing memory making, enjoying the time they had left. This type of language was used in uh, 48% and again, typically initiated by clinicians. In 38% of these meetings, there were no uses of the words die, death, dying, or stillborn. Um, in hoping or planning for a different outcome, speakers often made statements about what they wished is true, which actually in palliative care is a useful tool if used correctly. So they might say, for example, we always join you in hoping for a miracle. And um, in palliative care, you learn that uh, we always join you in hoping for a miracle. And I'm worried that might not happen. Or and. Um, that's not what I see happening for your baby. And so this type of language occurred in um, 30% uh, of meetings and in 60%, again, there's no use of die, death, dying, or stillborn. Um, so there are a few more data points, um, and I was glad that they gave us this great table that showed um, some actual quotes um, from the discussions. Um, but I think that this is um, really important for us to think about the words that we use. Um, in general, um, parents want us to be concrete um, about what we say. Um, so there's no real confusion about it. Mm -hmm. um, I think what was really a salient point for me is that when the words were used, um, they were more often used by families. So I think that is a signal um, that those are the words we should be using with families. Thoughts? Um, I I saw that paper. I was like, this, I, 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 I didn't even start reading it. I sent it to you because I was like, she's, <laughs> she's, she, this is, because uh, for people who may not know, you are our palliative care uh, specialist mm -hmm. in our unit. Um I want to highlight the fact because also I, I think sometimes you could misinterpret the data. And mm. so you, because sometimes, you know, I will do this very often where if there's too many things to discuss with the family, you will, you will sit with them like twice in a day. You know, you're like, all right, let me mm. just break, break one thing first and then we'll have a, a discussion. But these meetings um, were conducted by the attending physician 97% of the time, right? Yeah. So, so they were not quote unquote dumped on a, on a trainee that doesn't have experience. Um, the palliative care was present 73% of the time. Um, so, so these are not like, you know, uh, okay, this is not like the, the curbside where the I just stop. And, yeah. Yeah. No, these are, these are meetings. Planned meetings. meetings. Yeah. And what's interesting is that if you had asked me before the, the article, what, uh, I'm sorry for the noise. They're doing some, some event planning next to the office, but the colloquialism, like your child will pass away. I would have thought would have been okay. Right. Mm. 
Um, because I'm like, it is, it is, a, I mean, passing away, we culturally, it means mm -hmm. your baby is not going to live, but it was interesting that, uh, it had to be, the word had to be sort of said. And I had an attending in residency who used to say, did you say the word? And if you did mm. not, you had to go back. go back. Um, and it's something I'm trying to teach my medical students also about like delivering bad news because that's fortunately medicine has gone a long way. We no longer are having to disclose that patients died, but we have to always disclose these difficult situations where patients are quote unquote dying. Um, and so it's very difficult to have these, these conversations. So no, it was great. And I, and the, the, the inverted pyramid was great. We're going to post that on our social media yeah. account. So yeah. Agreed. Agreed. Free, any thoughts? Yeah. I think we, I, I just want to say more thing. I think we owe it to parents. Um, we can be hopeful like, like they, we're trying to express in some of these meetings. Uh, we should be hopeful, but we owe it to parents when we feel like their babies might die. So they have the opportunity to do some of the things that were recommended and discussed. But parents may be like, yeah, but why do I have to do that? It, and it's exactly what you it's exactly right. Meaning we don't avoid the word because we're just malignant. It's so uncomfortable. Right. We don't want to, we don't want to have to say the word. It's just painful to us too. And I think that's something that we just have to unfortunately accept that and just 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 you know take the leap and just face the the challenges that are going to follow from from bringing that into the conversation but it is ourselves as well i see this with the medical sense like i don't want to mm -hmm. tell people that they have cancer i don't want to tell people that their kids mm -hmm. dying i just don't want to do it and it's it's cuz it hurts me like it hurts me it's yeah. not that like i'm just like oh if i mention it they're going to keep me waiting for like another 15 minutes cuz they're going to have so many questions i i want to believe at least that most of our colleagues are not like that you don't go into neonatology uh with yeah. that mindset so I totally agree. And I think one of the most valuable things I did in these additional palliative care, you know, training uh, that I did was um, I think everybody who works in our community has to take some time to think about their own relationship with death and dying and what about it is so uncomfortable for them. Is it something you talk about with your family, with your uh, partner, um, with your children. And, and you really have to first become comfortable with it yourself before you can be comfortable with it uh, for families. So I think a reflection exercise is valuable. Yeah. I think that this just highlights, the article mm -hmm. highlights that we do need to focus on this and make it more comfortable, whether it be for trainees or even mm -hmm. people who are mid-career that this is, you know, maybe we need some more education. Not everyone has this expertise or this, uh, you know, um, comfort with the conversation and the topic. And it's funny because I remember this, I'm going to take things to a lighter note now in the TV show scrubs, yeah. uh, which is my favorite medical TV show. Mm -hmm. There's a, there's a moment where, uh, the main character says we're friends with, basically they're saying like how they're friends with death. Cause it's like death is in and around the hospital all the time. And mm -hmm. so as a physician, you're like, and, and in the show, there's like, the, the character representing death walking around and they just basically are uh, saying hi to the doctors as if it's like another coworker in the hospital. And so what, aside from, from the joke there, it's just the fact that like, despite the fact that we're surrounded by mortality and death in, in the hospital, it still doesn't make this any less and uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. And I think, and I think that's something that as uh, sometimes as a critical care physician, especially when you have friends who are not in medicine, you're like, I, I see death every single day, or I see uh, shadows of death in in the unit and that and that really that really messes you up <laughs> mm. pretty big time but yet still it's nice to see in that paper that there is 
that that sensitivity remains there where people are just not they just don't want to say just don't want to say the word it's just very poetic yeah. in my opinion i think it does also highlight the value of Uh, dedicated palliative care teams. I think a lot of times in the NICU, we talk about this all the time. We're so siloed. We're in this bubble and we're like, you know what? We got this. We can handle it. And like you said, we, we deal, we quote unquote deal with death, but you know, there's a subspecialty trained to, to just have these conversations. And so uh, for units that haven't maybe embraced uh, that, uh, and, I hope and this the one, sheds light on And the on one the thing that's that exactly right, and I think that the palliative care can come to relieve a little bit the sense, and I'm talking for myself here, where when you do have to bring up the word, it's even though it's not a failure on your part, like to me, right. it, always, it always feels like, have I failed? Like, is the baby dying because I have failed as a physician? And that's very tough. And I know it's completely irrational and it's it's not true, but still, it's like, I have maybe have yeah. failed and I don't want to admit to my to my failure because it, it's painful. This episode is also proudly sponsored by Reckitt Meat Johnson. Reckitt Meat Johnson is dedicated to the research and development of nutrition products that help support baby development at every stage, including an extensive and female portfolio for premature and low birth weight infants. Learn more at hcp.meatjohnson.com. All right, we need to keep going because we're gonna because all right. So um Priya, you wanna you wanna you have a very exciting paper, so I'm excited for, for the review. Yeah, I was going to say, it's an exciting topic. So the title of this paper is Cannabis Use During Lactation May Alter the Composition of Human Breast Milk. The author, first author is Chitman Deep Josan, and it was published in the Pediatric Research Journal. And the authors are from McMaster University in Canada. So I felt like this was a really interesting and relevant topic, given, you know, the increase in legalization of cannabis, not only in the U.S., but really worldwide. Mm -hmm. And I think as a pharmacist, we're often consulted to review meds for breastfeeding. So this one really hit home uh, for me. Um, and so the authors really tell us that, you know, cannabis is used by women to manage symptoms of morning sickness during pregnancy and postpartum stress and anxiety. Um, the use during pregnancy has been found to negatively influence growth and postnatal exposure through breast milk has been associated with decreased infant motor development at one year of age. So what we know about cannabis is it does cross the placenta into the breast milk. Um, and there's a thought that maybe there's this long-term storage of cannabinoids and a slow release back into the breast milk during lactation. Uh, we know that the ACOG recommends discontinuing during pregnancy and lactation. And interestingly, um, there's a Canadian survey of pregnant moms, and they asked them, you know, do you understand the risk factors? And greater than 90% of these pregnant mothers said, yeah, we do understand the risk factors. Um, despite this, though, there is an increased uh, use of cannabis, and the self-reported prevalence is anywhere between two to eleven point three percent in pregnancy. Yeah, I was wo I was wondering if that's even. I, I don't know if that's true. I mean, right? Well, that's what they said. I, that's what they say, and I'm sure I'm that. sure the data is is correct. I'm not questioning the data, but it's like I feel like in even in medicine, we barely know. Like, right? It's right. like like if you ask the doctors, like, what are those? It's like uh, you, you have to think. Mm -hmm. I, I mean. I think people want to be left alone. Maybe that's, that's a, yeah, yeah, sure. I know. Yeah, the reporting is definitely, I feel like de underreported probably, mm -hmm. especially you now with the, the connotation and uh, the uh, the thought that, you know, this 
we know it's bad. Am I going to tell my doctor it's bad Mm -hmm. Uh, because it's bad? So anyways, the question here was, what are the changes in lipid, protein, carbohydrate, lactose, and secretory immunoglobulin A, which I'm going to call SIGA from now, um, levels in the milk of cannabis users and non-users? And this SIGA really is the predominant immunoglobulin in colostrum and mature milk. It's been shown to be essential for immunity. So really, they wanted to look at this. And they said that, you know, They've heard of reports. Um, there's obviously a lot of data out there, um, but this is the first actually looking at these in in in, uh, in the breast milk and the composition of the breast milk. So the study design was uh, pregnant and recently postpartum women who were either using cannabis or not using any substance that was our control group were recruited out of prenatal and antenatal OBGYN clinic and birthing units um, at McMaster. Uh, the Participants provided verbal and written consent, and they completed a questionnaire via the REDCap system. So their medical information was taken from the time of delivery um, from patient charts, and they provided milk samples between six to eight weeks postpartum. It was two ounces of milk that they were asked to provide, which was stored frozen, and they were paid $25 for participation. One thing that I felt that was missed here was the study period. I went back and looked several times to say, okay, how long was this study for and what years? I think it would have been important. So I did read that, you know, in 2018, this was legalized in Canada. And so that reference and time frame would have been important. Um, yeah, they and, announced- and, that's, and that's something else that's very important is that for the people, because I was not familiar with mm-hmm. that, but uh, any per- in Ontario, which is where the study is taking place, any person 19 uh, or older can buy, use, possess and grow recreational cannabis within the legal limits. So um, that's important too, that it's that uh, recreational marijuana is, is, is legalized. Yep. So they did look at um, the metabolites. So a, a cannabinoid analysis, they looked at THC, carboxy THC, 11-OH THC, CBD, and CBN. And this was uh, studied based on previous research. They actually have um, an analysis method that they developed and validated at McMaster. And what they do is they use this protein precipitation method. Then they follow it with a lipid removal step and then evaluate via mass back and uh, look at the peak area measured. Um, They also used a human milk analyzer to measure the macronutrients, so um, energy, fat, carbohydrates, and protein. Um, And then the milk samples were defatted via centrifuge and then re-centrifused. The aqueous fraction of that and then uh, the IgA was looked at via uh, the ELISA and lactose uh, was looked at via the lactose assay kit. Um, So for the results here, so they had 78 women that really provided consent to be contacted, but of those 78, they recruited 18 non-users and 22 users that were enrolled and 17 non-users and 19 users completed the study. <laughs> so, and the reason why there was a dropout there was because there was little or uh, little to no milk supply was the major reason for the difference in the numbers there. So the demographics I thought were really interesting. So cannabis users were younger, um, but they were also really well-educated. So 50% in both groups went to college, university. Um, there was a lower percentage of breastfeeding in users. And I, you know, 86.4 is still high versus the 100 
percent non-users, and there was a reported lower levels of milk production at weeks one, two, four, and six compared to non-users. And the the authors related this back to a previous study that said that these patients could probably have lower prolactin levels, but they did not look at that. Um, So 91% of the cannabis users used in the six months prior to pregnancy 82% during pregnancy with most in the first trimester and less each subsequent trimester. 44% reported using during the entire pregnancy. And then 55% used post-delivery. So of our users, only 55% reported using post-delivery. The authors looked at the type of cannabis, the frequency um, was reported, most smoked, and used daily for both pregnancy and post-delivery. They also looked at cigarette use, alcohol consumption, and patterns by partner or roommates. Um, So they looked at those reports too. When looking at the milk samples, so we had 14 milk samples collected from 13 cannabis users, and they presented detectable levels of cannabinoids. It's interesting because there's a table that has a nice breakdown of the min and max concentrations of each of these metabolites and also the range. But the THC was higher in daily users. And they had one user who had the highest THC level, and that was the only sample that showed the detectable CBD. So it also goes to show here that these metabolites are not all the same, that they don't present the same. Um, So I thought that that was an an interesting analysis. Um, The macronutrient levels were not different from the milk of non-users versus users. Uh, Where they did see some differences were lactose levels were higher in users. um, And I'll say users as pregnancy and then postpartum were combining them both, but they really found no difference in the pregnancy only users. So lactose levels were also higher when you adjusted for maternal age. Uh, The importance with lactose is that it's the most abundant carb, uh, 90 to 95% in breast milk. So you would expect that you would see a difference in the carb levels, but there was no difference there. Um, And they said that the sample size was just too small to determine that effect. Um, The SIGA was significantly lower in users, but no difference in pregnancy-only users. Um, And then obviously the speculation here is that these low SIGA concentrations could impact the immune profile of the milk. Um, SIGA levels were significantly lower in the milk of cannabis users who did not report cigarette smoking. So then you also wonder, is there some sort of protective effect with the use of both? Um, But then, you know, they say postpartum specific stress has been linked to reduced SIGA concentrations. It really is important for us to understand this relationship. Is it cannabis use? Is it stress? Is it both? Uh, They didn't, you know, really analyze stress in this study here. Um, There was a positive correlation with carboxy-THC in crude protein, a negative correlation with 11-OHC-THC in carb levels. Um, So again, when we're looking at user versus non-user, really no difference in the BMI of these moms. Um, The co-use of cigarettes plus cannabis had a lower carbohydrate, but greater crude and true protein levels. 
And um, hypothetically, you know, there's previous studies that show that lower protein levels with cigarette smoking, it's hypothesized that this co-use disrupts the process that decreases protein levels from colostrum to mature milk. Um, no effect on, uh, of alcohol co-use. And when we looked at the birth weight of the babies born, the mean adjusted birth weight was lower by about 213 grams on average, but it was not statistically significant. So some of the limitations of this study is that, you know, they didn't really look at the amounts and frequency of the cannabis. Uh, they weren't recorded in detail. These milk samples were only collected at a single time point. And this really could have provided us further insight into the accumulation and the effect of cannabis on the milk. Um, the conclusion by the authors are, again, this really is the first study reporting the effect of maternal cannabis on breast milk composition and that they report the maternal cannabis consumption during lactation is associated with the presence of several cannabinoids, including the metabolites of THC and attenuated IgA levels in the milk of users. And this may impact the infant's health due to a direct um, cannabinoid exposure and altered milk consumption. And as, as with every study, we further studies are needed. We, we need to look at, um, you know, infant health outcomes, specifically neurodevelopmental and behavioral outcomes, as well as body weight and growth of infants exposed to cannabis through breast milk. Um, and this is so that we can inform our mothers um, and also, you know, know for ourselves what this, what the impact is here. So I'll open it up to you guys for your thoughts. Yeah, I thought it was a, I thought it was an interesting paper, right? We talk about this all the time about quote unquote is it safe or not? And you know what what is what is safe or not safe about it. And I think this is particularly important these preterm infants where we know that mom's own milk is so valuable, right? Yeah. But they're also the babies at highest risk for neurodevelopmental or neurodevelopmental outcomes. And I thought this was an interesting take by looking at what it does to the nutritional components of, of milk. I'd like to see more work. I'd like, I think, especially um, looking at what's the, what's the trade-off, right? Uh, getting mom's own milk and knack or, ver, you know, versus the, these, some of these outcomes. So that's where I'm at with it. And that we're going to see more and more marijuana use in this country as well, in the United States as well. Um, so we got to start learning about it. Yeah. I mean, the numbers were small. It's difficult to draw right. conclusions from this. And I think, but it does, it does. I, I mean, to be honest, I, I was really appreciative of all the bar graphs that they created mm -hmm. um, because these are things, like I said, you can always pull and bring to the bedside and show parents and say, well, well it wouldn't make that much of a difference when it comes to that. And I but it will reduce, for example, secretory IGA. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, the cigarette stuff very puzzling i mean that's just very i would i would be curious to see um it sounds like a european study that's going to need to be done where everybody smokes cigarettes <laughs> uh but uh, but this was no this was very interesting and um and it's not benign i think again as we always mm -hmm. say uh it's very important in the public conscious the conscious consciousness that uh legalization doesn't mean that it's it's healthy and that there but there is there are side effects and i think I can't, I'm trying to pull up this paper. I can't seem to find it, but there were data about uh, some 
um, effect on on intelligence in babies who were breastfed, in mothers who were um, using marijuana. But I'm not sure. I can't find the paper now, so now I'm now hesitating. In any case, I will I will find it and try to bring it up. In any case, yeah. Okay. Um, okay. I have, yeah. I have a few more. I have a few more papers to go through. Um, I'm going to start with this one, if that's okay, right? Definitely, is it okay if I go? Yeah, please. All right. So this is a, a paper on antenatal steroids. It's called Association of Antenatal Steroids Exposure at 21 to 22 Weeks of Gestation with Neonatal Survival and Survival Without Morbidities. First author is Sanjay Chawla. It's in JAMA Open. Lots of good articles this, ti- this, this time around in JAMA Open. And it's coming from the NICHD Neonatal Research Network. We've talked a lot about all these papers that have come out on antenatal uh, corticosteroids and, and how... They may have some deleterious effects uh, long-term in babies who end up not, for example, not being delivered preterm. So I thought it was very interesting to review some data that might uh, reassure us that <laughs> antenatal steroids actually have um, have a positive effect. So in the background, they mentioned that the administration of antenatal steroids to pregnant patients at risk of develop of delivering uh, between 24 and 34 weeks is associated with lower mortality, lower risk of uh, reduced RDS, neck, IVH. And, and I quote, they say, for clinicians caring for pregnant patients at 22 weeks gestation at risk of preterm delivery, the value of antenatal steroids administration at 22 weeks or younger remains unclear. They do mention this shift in the recommendations from the ACOG to 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 uh, conduct shared decision making at these types of gestational ages with family about the administration of antenatal steroids, and the question they're trying to ask is what are the rates of survival and survival without major neonatal morbidities among infants born at 22 to 23 and six weeks who were either exposed to antenatal steroids at 22 weeks or younger um, versus infants who were not. So it was a retrospective cohort study using prospectively collected data from the NICHD Neonatal Research Network. They included infants who were uh, born between uh, 2016 and 2019 uh, at a gestational age of 22 to 23 and six weeks. They excluded infants who were born at an outside outlying hospital uh, who had major congenital anomalies, who had received, um, wh- whose mother had received antenatal dexamethasone. And they were saying it was too rarely used to create its own category. So they excluded the few patients that were in that category, uh, received antenatal steroids at 23 weeks or received more than one course of antenatal steroids. All these patients were excluded. Infants who died within 12 hours without receiving postnatal life support were also excluded. So that means babies who, uh, I guess, received what we call comfort care Um right after birth. The intervention, they basically classified everybody in three groups, either no steroids, or you had a partial course, like you got one dose and then mother delivered, or a complete course, you got two doses and then delivered. Um, Many maternal and infant variables were collected. Um, Resuscitation at delivery is something that they defined as either you needing chest compression or epinephrine. The primary outcome was survival to discharge. Secondary outcome were severe uh, survival without severe neonatal morbidities, including IVH, PVL, surgical NEC, severe BPD, severe ROP, requiring treatment. Um, okay, so let's get into the results because we are short on time. There was a total of 431 patients. The mean gestational ages was 22.6 weeks. Um, 54% were boys, and they included 110 patients who received no steroids. So that was 25% of the cohort. 80 patients who received one course, like just one dose, uh, not one course, one dose, that was 18% 
18.6% of the cohort, and then 241 infants, which is 56% of the cohort who received the full two doses. Differences in the maternal and infant characteristics were present among groups for uh, maternal education, magnesium sulfate exposure, antibiotic exposure, clinical choreo, histological choreo, premature rupture of, of membrane, mode of delivery, race, gestational age, Medicaid insurance, and APGAR scores at one in five minutes. Um, so a lot of different variables that they're going to have to account to in some of these uh, analyses down the road. Uh, the earliest antenatal steroid exposure was at 21 and two weeks. Just going to let that sit. Okay, so let. what are some of the results? Among the infants exposed to complete antenatal steroid, 54% survived to discharge compared to 37% with partial course mm -hmm. or 35% with no antenatal steroids. And I'm going to post these bar graphs because they are impressive. Yeah. Among infants exposed to complete antenatal steroids, 27% survived without major morbidities compared to 12.8% with partial steroid course and 10% with no antenatal steroids. Uh, a few, two more points compared with infants without antenatal uh, steroid exposure. Infants born after a complete antenatal steroid exposure had significantly higher adjusted odds of survival to discharge with an AOR of 1.95 and a survival without major morbidity with an AOR of 2.74. Um, interesting finding, which I want to mention, they, they say, and I quote, when looking in at individual morbidities, the risk of sepsis was higher in infants born after complete antenatal steroid exposure compared with those with partial antenatal steroids exposure. I'm not exactly sure if other factors play a role. I haven't really looked. I'm going to be honest with the audience. I haven't looked if these patients specifically had prolonged rupture of membrane. I don't know. I don't know all that stuff. The conclusion of the paper is that um, among babies who are born uh, between 22 and 23 and 6 who receive intensive care, exposure to a complete course of antenatal steroids um, at 22 by 22 and 6 weeks or less was independently associated with a greater odds of survival and survival without major morbidity. Um, these data suggest that the use of antenatal steroids in patients at 22 and six weeks or less could be beneficial when active treatment is considered. Uh, I thought it was a phenomenal uh, data. I just wish um, it wasn't really telling you why the babies ended up being delivered early, right? Which mm -hmm. is something I would have liked to know. But other than that, very interesting. And I think yeah. a lot of the papers that have come out recently can make you uh, squeamish as to should we give steroids uh, as much as we're doing it. But to see that evidence, especially in the most preterm, if you are pretty sure that these mothers might deliver early, it's definitely uh, a strong benefit. Thoughts? No, I, I think you've hit the major points. I think the data speaks for itself, I guess. I say, like, I agree with you looking at all those um, figures I thought was valuable. And one other thing, Ben, maybe I missed it, is did they talk about repeat courses? I know this comes up like when you give the course and the baby's no, really... Those, they, 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 okay. those babies were excluded. Okay. So if you had like the rescue the rescue course, as, as we call it, that, that you were not included in the trial. Okay. But I think okay. you bring up a good point, Ben. Why, why didn't they complete the course, right? Was it, you know, 
you know, is it precipitous, right. It's precipitous (laughs) labor, most likely, um, which could be related to another, a a number of things. Was it infection? Was it, you know, what, you know, so the, the phenotypes of the babies, as we say, are very important. Um, I had a paper I wanted to touch on. I'll just do the main highlights because we are really short on time. And I have, and I have, and you have more. I have technically two more, but I'm going to just quickly go over one of the results and that's it. <laughs> I, well, I was excited about this paper because I think uh, that we will be seeing more information about urea plasma um, infections in preemies. You know, I'm always looking for urea plasma in the unit. I picked that one for you. <laughs> Um, but that's partially because we had such great collaboration um, at the University of Florida with obstetrics. And when you heard how much mycoplasma and urioplasma was, uh, is, is uh, recovered uh, from the flora of mothers who are born preterm, you're like, it's got to be, it's got to be related. Why aren't we paying more attention to it? Mm-hmm. And so the studies are coming. Um, this title, uh, Predicting the Likelihood of Lower Respiratory Tract Ureoplasma Infections in Preterms, uh, lead author Rose Marie Viscardi, um, senior author Natalie Davis. This is an Archives of Disease Child and Fetal Edition coming to us from the University of Maryland in Baltimore. So they really wanted to inquire about how you could predict which infants would have ureoplasma or not. Um, uh, so they actually had data from five different published cohorts with enrollment dates from 1999 to 2016. So that's just something to take into account. Uh, the cohorts had different gestational ages and respiratory criteria, but all the infants were less than 33 weeks. And the analysis is kind of based on the fact that they collected the same demographic, obstetric, and neonatal variables from each cohort. And basically what they did is they looked at um, tracheal aspirates and nasopharyngeal aspirates um, obtained from and intubated infants, um, if they had an endotracheal tube, and then not nasopharyngeal aspirates from non-intubated infants. So that was different across the cohorts, and there was congruence uh, most of the time for tracheal aspirates and nasopharyngeal aspirates. So that's details that if we had more time, I think we should go uh, go over. But they were really looking at um, developing risk models for ureoplasma carriage in these infants. Um, so they used three different uh, models, which I'll talk about. Um, in general, they are, uh, enrolled 637 infants. Um, and uh, when you looked at their uh, status in, in 65% uh, of infants, um, they had tracheal aspirates without nasopharyngeal aspirates, um, but had a conf- available for culture, 32%. And they had confirmed ureoplasma in 68%. Um, so I thought that was, uh, I thought that was pretty high. And then in babies who had paired nasal pharyngeal aspirates with concordant uh, tracheal aspirates, that was 85%. So that potentially nasopharyngeal aspirates um, could still be useful. So there's a lot of data here. I'm just going to jump to the the really the models. They had three predictive models and all the area under the curves for the three predictive models had very good predictive accuracy. So area under the curve 0.73 to 0.77. And I'll just talk specifically about the highest achieving model. That was their model number one with an area under the curve of 0.77. 
And the variables they included were sex, race, multiple gestation, maternal age, um, PPROM, rupture of membrane duration, antenatal steroids, maternal antibiotics, choreo, route of delivery, birth weight, gestational age, the APGAR, and they included emission um, white blood cell count and ANC. Um, and so the, the big differences between the models is that model one included the gestational age per week, the duration of the retro membranes greater than 72 hours, and the admission white blood cell count. Um, and so uh, when all 17 predictors were included in the regression, it was really the gestational age, the rupture of membranes, and the admission white blood cell count were the predominant kind of selected predictors. And so they were, they have a, um, an equation there if you want to plug everything in for risk stratification, but they um, commented in the discussion that potentially the infant's risk could be simply classified at the bedside into low risk and high risk by using gestational age. And so I'll, ha- I'll highlight um, that it was really those babies born um, less than 26 weeks um, that had the highest risk um, for urea plasma. Um, And then admission white blood cell count less than 9,600 or greater than 9,600, which is actually, I think, a pretty low white blood cell count. Um, So, um, and if you if you don't have the admission uh, information, just antenatally using the gestational age and the rupture membrane duration greater than 72 hours could be used for simple risk classification. So I think so that's, that's a lot of so, babies. So that's interesting that like it's, it's a, it's leukocytosis. That's right. That's right. Huh. Greater than nine, uh, equal to, or greater than 9,600, which is not that high. Yeah. Which I feel like, like 90% <laughs> almost all the babies. Like, that's yeah. right. Um, yeah, because technically, I would have thought because I was looking at the equation, and it's not like it's a it's a it's a direct relationship, not a not an inverse relationship. So That's I was right. like, hmm, this is odd. But so yeah, okay. So high leukocytosis, very interesting. High leukocytosis, the rupture of membrane, duration greater than seventy two hours, and um, the gestational age uh, highest in those babies born less than twenty six weeks. For my friends of well versed in grammar, I didn't mean to say high leukocytosis. I apologize. It's leukocytosis. <laughs> Fine. Fine. It's been, we've been at this for some time now. And, uh, okay. Yes. All right. So you finish up here. Okay. I'm going to finish up. Fine. So there's two papers I wanted to, uh, mention. The first one is also published in JAMA Open. It's called Neurocognitive Outcomes at Age Two Years After Neonatal Hypoglycemia in a Cohort of Participants in the HPOD Randomized Trial. First author, Tegan Edwards in from New uh, Zealand. Super interesting. I mean, we deal with hypoglycemia all the time. And the question they're asking is, is there an association between neonatal hypoglycemia and neurocognitive outcome at corrected two years in late preterm and full-term neonates born at risk of hypoglycemia without evidence of an acute neonatal illness? What they basically did is that this was like a, a this is the H, uh, what is it called? The HPOD trial, which basically looked at babies and they identified risk factors for potential hypoglycemia. And it didn't really let them get hypoglycemic. They just gave mm. them feeding and dextrose gel before uh, almost the, before the first measurement. And then they were trying to see if that would have, uh, that would reduce the incidence of hypoglycemia or if it would have any uh, immediate short-term outcome. So we can link that paper. The bottom line is that it didn't have, uh, it wasn't really recommending giving uh, prophylactic, uh, prophylactic uh, glucose gel 
but um, they were able to include. I'm going to skip a little bit some of the some of the of the the result of the of the methods, um, but they were able to enroll a 1,321 infant. Um, they assessed them at two years of age, and um, yeah. And so basically, what are some of the results? I'm going to actually just pull up the abstract because I wrote down so much stuff. Um, <laughs> Yeah, and I realize I'm gonna not uh, abide by my word. So, um, fine. So, 52% were male compared with the norm, the normal glycemia group. Children who experienced hypoglycemia were more likely to have neurosensory impairment. 23% versus 18%, particularly if they experienced severe episodes, in which case it was 28% versus 18%, but not recurrent episodes. So the severity, the presence of hypoglycemia or its severity had a significant impact on the neurosensory impairment. However, if after that you had more recurrence, it didn't really translate into uh, worse numbers down the road. The risk of cognitive language or motor delay was similar between groups, but children who experienced hypoglycemia had lower Bailey 3 composite cognitive and motor scores. And so the conclusions of the article is that in children born at risk of hypoglycemia, but otherwise well, those who experienced hypoglycemia were more likely to have neurosensory impairment at corrected age two years with higher risk for severe episodes. Further research is required to determine causality. Sure. But this was, to me, a paper that was very interesting because it's terrifying because yeah. <laughs> you get that data I mean, and you're like... And, and the data is, I mean, it's not new data, right? But it, it is just it hammers home the point like this. We can't just like sit on this hypoglycemia. You can't sit on it, but also like they give them prophylactic dextrose gel. <laughs> right, right. So it's like, I mean, yeah, but it's definitely something that um, uh, the frequency is not an issue, but the severity of the episode. So mm -hmm. that's something I feel like we, we may have uh, an ability to impact on. So, okay. Last paper I wanted to mention is in the Journal of Pediatrics. It's called Delayed Surgical Closure of the PDA. Does the brain mm. pay the price? You left this one for last? <laughs> I was supposed to open with that one, but then the New England decided to drop the bomb with the DHA paper. So now here we are. But I'm leaving this for last because I'm going to... Um, okay, it's first author, Petra Lemmer's uh, Journal of Pediatrics. The data is from Utrecht in Holland. This is another paper that had a lot of attention on Twitter. So you're going to be able to uh, go on Twitter. And I think it's Abdul Razak who, who tweeted about it. And there's a lot of interesting discussion with Afif Al-Kufash weighing in. And so all these guys, again, if you're not on Twitter, you're, you're missing out. But um, I, I'm finishing it off, finishing off with this one because I feel like uh, people will be able to continue the discussion on Twitter. So um, the uh, objective was to investigate the relationship between hemodynamic significant PDA, cerebral oxygenation, MRI determined brain growth, and two-year neurodermental outcome in a cohort of preterm infant whose duct was closed surgically. So the design is that preterm infants who were born at less than 30 weeks who underwent surgical closure between 2008 and 2018 were included in this observational study. They monitored cerebral oxygenation saturation using near-infrared spectroscopy during and up to 24 hours after ductal closure. They used a Bailey 3 uh, assessment uh, at corrected age two years. And uh, all infants also had MRI at term equivalent. The results is that 90 infants fulfilled the inclusion criteria. The days of a PDA ranged from one day to 41 day. And the multivariable linear regression analysis showed that duration of a PDA negatively influenced cerebellar growth and motor and cognitive outcomes at 
two years of corrected age. And the conclusion is that prolonged duration of a PDA in this surgical cohort is associated with reduced cerebellar growth and suboptimal neurodevelopmental outcome. Um, the big point of discussion on Twitter, if you want to go and I can sort of prime, if you're, mm-hmm. if you're listening, I can prime you for what people are talking about is um, the the in, nutritional information on these babies, obviously, as to especially when we're looking at uh, MRI findings and uh, what was that. But actually, interestingly enough, uh, one of the authors, Daniel Visual Brief, who's the second author of the paper, is actually active on Twitter and actually is also participating in that mm-hmm. discussion. So please uh, go take a look at that. However, I do have to say that this data is aligned with uh, other data that has shown that uh, a prolonged exposure to a, a hemodynamically significant PDA does have uh, negative uh, long-term outcomes, especially on neurodevelopment. Afif, I think Afif uh, El-Kufash mentioned that as well. Uh, so yeah, that was another interesting paper. You may have questions about uh, how did they decide to perform surgical closure? What was uh, hemodynamic? All that stuff is in the paper. I actually wrote it down in my notes, but I just we just don't have the time. So trust me, it's there. And if you're that passionate, it's there for you as well. Go read it. And like you said, this is the, if you've been hesitating to get on Twitter, just, I mean, this is the time you can follow, you know, when we post this, it's already on fire on Twitter, but when we post this discussion, we'll definitely continue. So follow us, follow Neo, and you'll get in on the conversation. Absolutely. And I mean, can I, can I just mention one more thing, right? I mean, if I'm, I'm actually going to pull this up right now. So Abdul Razak, who is uh, one of the uh, who's who's one of the social media editors for Ibneo, and uh, who wrote a bunch of Cochrane reviews, is publishing that article. Right, Afif El Kufash, who is a world expert on the topic of PDA, is there weighing in. Our very good friend Gabriel Altit from Montreal, right, who is an expert in hemodynamics, is there weighing in. Nick Kimbolton, Cami Martin. Yeah. Uh, Dr. Gotham, right? All these guys are having a discussion. And I forgot in the midst of all that, we have obviously the the author of the paper who is interacting. So to have this degree of excellence, like this, this round table with all these experts um, in one place is freaking phenomenal. So yeah. yeah, I feel like if you're a trainee, if you're a fellow and you, you know, the PDA is a hot topic, right? You got faculty on one side, on both sides, you know, you, you, there's conflict in your unit. I mean, you come join the conversation as a voyeur, just look at, just, just watch, just see what people are talking about. So, so you can bring it up on rounds. <laughs> Absolutely. So to close out the show, um, please remember to send us your stories of how the podcast has impacted your day-to-day uh, life in the NICU. Uh, it warms our received, heart. Oh man, first of all, it warms our heart. And some of them are are phenomenal and we're very, it gives keeps us uh, excited to keep doing this. We'll have uh, a way to incorporate that in our end of year giveaway. Uh, we have board review podcast starting tomorrow on abdominal wall defect. We're having the pleasure of having as our expert, Dr. Noor Kassiara, who's going to talk to us about uh, what does life look like for these babies with emphalocele and gastroschisis? Um, and remember to, uh, I guess, yeah, that's it. We're going to give you more information about the Delphi conference as as uh, registration opens. It's going to be limited seats, unfortunately. Um, we 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 don't know how to do this. So we plan for a certain number of people, right? <laughs> And, and so we plan for a certain number of people because if 
we cannot afford. Yeah, we're learning. Have, we're learning. We're learning. So next year, we want to. No, we want to make it a really special experience. Yeah, we don't want to for, drop the ball. We don't want to drop the ball. So we decided. So we're, we're starting. Gonna, small. We're going to set the scale. Uh, yeah. So when the the registration opens, uh, please make sure to register, and uh, we'll talk to you more re- in the coming weeks about the NICU Life in Between, which is our photography project with Rick Adotti. So stay tuned for that. Um, there's lots of stuff going on. So yeah, stay tuned. Uh, Daphna, Priya, it was fun. Great job on your first podcast. Thanks for joining Thank us, Priya. <laughs> Bye, everybody. Yeah. All right, guys. Thank you for listening to the Incubator Podcast. If you like this episode, please leave us a review on Apple Podcast or the Apple Podcast website. You can find other episodes of the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcast, or the podcast app of your choice. We would love to hear from you, so feel free to send us questions, comments, or suggestions to our email address, nikupodcast at gmail.com. You can also message the show on Instagram or Twitter at NICUPodcast, or through our website at www.the-incubator.org. This podcast is intended to be purely for entertainment and informational purposes and should not be construed as medical advice. If you have any medical concerns, please see your primary care professional. Thank you.